You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member Susan Supak, as she sits down for another conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Jan Holden. Dr. Holden graduated with honors from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana with a bachelor's degree in psychology. Both her master's and doctoral degrees are in counselor education from Northern Illinois University. Her career began as a counselor, and in 1988, she joined UNT's counseling program faculty. Her primary area of professional interest has been with the transpersonal perspective of counseling. That refers to experiences that involve transcendence of the usual personal limits of space and time, particularly in the area of near-death experiences. Dr. Holden has 40 years of experience in researching this phenomenon, particularly concerning verifiable experiences. She is a well-published and highly regarded expert in her field and, fortunately for us, has shared her expertise with Ollie. Welcome, Dr. Holden. Thank you, Susan. Let's explore your background a bit. And what led you to become an expert in the field of near-death experience? Well, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and went to college, studied psychology, then took a job as a high school psychology teacher. While I did that, I was getting my master's and doctorate in counselor education. And when I finished in 1988, I job searched throughout the country and landed at UNT. And I just retired from UNT like a month ago. So I was 31 years on the faculty, the counselor education faculty in the College of Education. And I spent, I think, 12 of those years as department chair. And how I got into the field of near-death studies, there was no single event, and I have not had a near-death experience, though I've had several transpersonal experiences which are in the same category as near-death experiences, things like after-death communication, precognition, things like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it has been really interesting. Back when I was in undergraduate work, my father was reading a book called The Great Soul Trial, and he gave it to me to read. It's a nonfiction book by Robert Fuller. It's the story of a reclusive miner from Phoenix, Arizona, named James Kidd, who used to go off and mine for weeks at a time and then come back to just a little room. He was a very frugal, reclusive guy, and he would cash in whatever he had mined, and then he would get his provisions and go off again for several weeks. Well, one day he went off and he never came back. So after seven years, the state of Arizona declared declared him dead, and they opened his safe deposit box, and there they found several hundred thousand dollars and a little handwritten note saying that he wanted the money used for research on the survival of the human soul after death. Now this was back around 1960, so it was a while back. The state of Arizona did what they thought was going to be sort of a throwaway. They did their obligation, put a little 
ad in the newspaper saying that this money was available and they thought nobody would pay attention and they'd just get to keep it for the state coffers. But to their surprise, over a hundred individuals and organizations came forward to claim the money. So the state of Arizona actually had to put on a trial where a judge heard people come and say how they would fulfill the will of James Kidd. And that included the research directors of the American Society for Psychical Research and the Psychical Research Foundation. And a lot of the book is their verbatim testimony about how they would research the survival of the human soul after death. Well, little did I know when I was reading this book, it was very fascinating to me that I would actually end up doing that kind of research myself. I probably read that book around 1970. In 1975, Raymond Moody wrote the book Life After Life, which was the first book in which the term near-death experience is coined. And I read that book in 1978. Then in the mid-80s, around 85, when I was starting work on my doctoral dissertation, I ended up doing my dissertation on something related to near-death experiences. And, you know, a lot of people, when they do a dissertation after they're done, they're sick of the topic and they never want to touch it again. But I was just the opposite. In fact, I've been so fascinated by these phenomena that as a member of the International Association for Near-Death Studies, which I was president of some time back, but uh, now just a regular member, one of the perks is they send a monthly near-death experience. They take a near-death experience from the archive and send it to us to read. And when I received that, even after having read and heard probably thousands of near-death experiences now, when I see that in my mailbox, I almost always drop everything and read it because it's still just endlessly fascinating to me. It is a topic that interests so many people. I had the pleasure of attending your lecture Mm. on your compilation of near-death experience research Mm -hmm. and explaining certain aspects of it. And I cannot tell you how many people I have mentioned it to and knowing that we were going to do this podcast together that were so interested and had so many questions and have said, please, please let me know when the podcast comes out. Right. What do you think the fascination for that is? Well, certainly it's probably one of the most compelling questions for humanity is what happens to us when we die. Near-death experiencers have, none of them have stayed dead. So they've just temporarily set foot into the domain of what they perceive to be ongoing consciousness after physical death. But they've all come back. So we can't know for sure from these experiences what happens to people who stay dead, but we know from the people who have set foot and come back that there are a lot of similarities that give us a lot of clues about the nature of the survival of consciousness after physical death. As a researcher, I know that the scientific method is very important to you. What definition do you use to qualify someone to having had a near-death experience. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked because in the popular media, people use the term near-death experience to refer to a close brush with death, and that's not actually accurate. All the people who survive a close brush with death, and that's from illness or accident, the 
majority, 80 to 90%, don't remember anything unusual. But 10 to 20% of people report that during the experience, during the close brush with death, their consciousness was functioning apart from their physical body very lucidly, actually much more lucidly than normally. And they're perceiving the material world and or perceiving and interacting with transmaterial entities and environments. And the entities could be like religious figures or deceased loved ones or even pets. So that's a near-death experience. It's this experience of lucid consciousness during a time when you would expect there to be no consciousness So their physical parameters would be flatlined. That's probably the most extreme circumstance. But in fact, people don't actually even have to be actually injured. They can have what we lightly referred to as a fear-death experience. For example, a gal who worked here at the university, when she was a teenager, she was driving down the road one day, and one thing led to another, and her vehicle rolled over three times down a ravine, actually landed on her head. Uh, She was thrown from it, and then it landed on her head. Oh, my goodness. And she said from the moment the tires left the road, when she first started to turn over, to the moment that the vehicle landed on her, she was out of her body, up in the trees, watching all this and knowing that her body, that that was her body she was seeing being thrown from the vehicle, seeing people rush to the scene. And she said she was in this state of absolute peace and well-being, kind of like benignly interested in what was happening down there, but not invested in it, but mostly just aware of being in this state of absolute peace and clarity and lucidity. But then when the vehicle hit, she was just back in her body. And she never actually lost consciousness. She did crack her skull, but she was never unconscious. But she had that brief experience that was very, very profound. It changed her. As these experiences tend to transform people, their belief systems, and she no longer feared death became more spiritual, more philosophical, more circumspect as a result of having this different perspective on the nature of who she was. You mentioned the feeling of peace and the clarity, the observation of it having an effect on her in terms of her fear of death. Are there common traits that you find with people that have had these near-death experiences like that? Yes, absolutely. And I like to say that the changes are PSPS, psychological, spiritual, physical, and then social. And so some of the psychological changes are that people become less concerned with material things, more concerned about serving other people, become more empathic. And then that loss of fear of death is very pervasive. The spiritual changes include a greater interest in spirituality. Like I hold a group that meets once a month. It's open to the public in Louisville. Oh, you'll have to tell us about that. Second Wednesday of every month called the Friends of IONS. That's the International Association for Near-Death Studies. Friends of IONS group. We'll watch a video from a conference or have a speaker. And last night we had a live speaker. He talked about how 
how he doesn't watch TV anymore. He reads the Bible. He's actually a little bit exceptional because a lot of times another spiritual change is that people tend to move away from organized religion, not because they disagree with it per se, but because they find that organized religion doesn't account for everything that they experience. It's just perhaps a little too restrained. Exactly, exactly. And people also in the spiritual domain develop precognitive abilities. They sometimes foresee the future. They sometimes start seeing dead people and communicating with the deceased. So you can have those kind of paranormal changes. Then the physical changes include sometimes people say it just seems like their metabolism has changed and they don't need to eat as much food as they used to. They may have a desire not to eat meat. But on the other hand, I have a good friend who has to eat meat every day, who had a near-death experience when she was five. And there is this interesting electromagnetic effect following a near-death experience. Electronic devices in the vicinity of near-death experiencers tend to malfunction. And that's actually was the topic of one of my doctoral students' dissertations. So it's been verified that people absolutely report these experiences more than the average person. And then the social changes, you can imagine that if the person is changed psychologically, spiritually, physically, they really are transformed. They're different than they were before the experience, and so that has repercussions in their social lives. People tend to change groups of friends just because their interests have changed. This is on topic of another of my former doctoral students, that people who are married at the time of a near-death experience are more likely to go on to divorce. She found that the dynamics behind that were that when you think about two people married and having kind of similar values, and then one person has an NDE and their values shift a lot. Well, if the values diverge from their partner, those people tend to divorce. She also found a couple of couples where the people reported they were happier than ever. And what she found in those cases was that in those couples, the non-near-death experiencer actually started out having somewhat more near-death experience-like values. So when the other person had the NDE, their values converged more and they continued in the relationship happier than ever. It has a lot to do with the value shifts that occur as a result of the experience. Do people tend to find more purpose in their life? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is one of the big, people absolutely have the sense that lives have purpose. People have had near-death experiences as a result of suicide or associated with a suicide attempt. And whereas in the normal population, if someone has attempted suicide, they're actually at higher risk of attempting again. If they've had a near-death experience, they're at lower risk than the normal population to try again. Not because they encountered anything bad, but because they learned in the NDE that their life had purpose. And that learning often comes during a particular part of the near-death experience that about 20% of near-death experiencers report called the life review. Usually the experiencer has encountered a being of light, which is this light that is a being that is all-knowing and all-loving. And in the presence of this light, they review and re-experience typically every moment of their life and also experience being on the receiving end of their actions. So 
it's like whatever we do to other people, we actually do to ourselves is what people experience. So they actually experience what that person would have experienced, good or bad. Exactly. It certainly makes you think about the actions you take every day, doesn't it? It certainly does. And that's one of the ways that study of this phenomenon has impacted me. As I'm about to make a decision, how will this play in my life review if I do this or that? Also, in the life review, sometimes the being of light will ask something along the lines of, what have you done with your life? Like, what can you show me that you've done with your life? And sometimes people are actually told that they've been gifted with abilities that they're not using for the purpose that they were intended to use it in their lives. And of course, after their NDE, they redirect their lives to use their talents more to the purpose of helping others and helping humanity. It makes me think we could all use a good old-fashioned NDE to help Mm -hmm. put us on the track without going through all the trauma ahead of time. Yes, yes. And actually, there's research showing that when people learn about near-death experiences, especially if they immerse themselves in the study of near-death experiences, at least for a little while, they tend to show the same value shifts as people who actually had NDEs. So there is value to just learning about near-death experiences. Oh, wonderful. And now one can go online and hear one near-death experiencer after another on YouTube and really get a sense of the kinds of things that I've been talking about. Do you find in your research that particular types of people tend to experience the NDEs? For example, are they more common with women or people who have had a certain level of education or particular religious affiliations, any of those types of things? Well, the bottom line is that the phrase that I like to use is that near-death experiences are an equal opportunity (laughs) transpersonal experience. So every demographic, every personality trait, everything you can think of, people's expectations, their belief systems, their religious background or lack of it, anything you can think of, we've researchers have studied and not found any determinants of the experience. So we take all the people who've survived a close brush with death, 10 to 20% remember an NDE, 80 to 90% don't. And we don't know the difference between those people. We can't predict who will or won't have There's an nothing NDE. that separates those two exactly, groups. Exactly, that we've been able to find so right. far. Within the people who've had near-death experiences, about 90% or, or more report a pleasurable experience. It's The experience is dominated by peace, joy, love, and those sorts of things. But about 10%, maybe a little less, report distressing experiences that are dominated by terror, horror, profound eternal isolation, uh, things that are hellish, although I've only really read one case involving actual like hellfire. It's more like the hell of having treated a lot of people badly and experiencing one person after another what they experienced at my hands, so to speak or being in an absolute eternal void alone forever. The good news about distressing NDEs is that even though in the short run, these experiencers tend to be afraid of death, understandably, in the long run, they come to see the experiences having been for their psychospiritual development. That's incredible. Yeah. I can see how it would be very transforming. Yes, absolutely. 
Right. You truly see the effect of whatever negativity that you've put out Mm -hmm. into the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've read also a lot of people report tunnels. Yeah. Is that Mm -hmm. Uh, About uh, 30% of people report that sometime during the experience, it's usually... Usually what happens is that the person first has what I call the material aspect where they're out of their body looking at the material world and it's usually their physical body and the area around it, although it can be anywhere because things move at the speed of thought. So if the person is out of their body and watching their body being resuscitated in an operating room or something like that, they might think, oh, my spouse is here in the hospital and the minute they think that, boom, they're in the waiting room watching their spouse who's, you know, reading a magazine or pacing or talking with another person who's waiting or whatever. Then typically what happens is that the person has a transmaterial aspect and the, the tunnel or movement, a sense of movement through some kind of space or tunnel or void is usually a transition between the material and the transmaterial, almost kind of like a wormhole that the person's consciousness goes through to arrive at another dimension. Do you see that these reports vary depending on the age of the person or the culture that they're from? No, and once again, equal opportunity. <laughs> so Even children. Even children, that's right. Children's NDEs can be very touching because like one child said, and then I was looking down this big noodle And so instead of not knowing the word for a tunnel or that the best they could think of was like a macaroni, a straightened (laughs) macaroni noodle, you know. So yes, and culturally, there is a website called NDERF, N-D-E-R-F, standing for Near Death Experience Research Foundation, .org, I think, and or it might be .com. There are thousands of accounts of near-death experiences there from people from all over the world, and you still see the same patterns. The webmaster, Jeffrey Long, and his wife, Jody Long, but Jeff wrote a book about the cross-cultural near-death experiences and how they're the same patterns. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I find that very affirming. Yeah. With your research... Mm You particularly focused on the verifiable experiences that people had. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, you had mentioned a woman in Austin, a young woman that had an accident, and what she saw Mm -hmm. with her stepfather and her mother. Would you like to share a little about those verifiable, yes, we we can listen to what you report, and we can sure confirm that that yeah. did happen. Yes. Well, and this is uh, Trisha Barker, and she has a website as well. She's an English teacher in community college in Fort Worth here. And back when she was a college student, she was in a car accident and broke her back in several places, broke her legs in several places, and was told that she wouldn't be able to walk again. But in her near-death experience, she had a healing experience, which happens sometimes where near-death experiencers have really seemingly miraculous healing. And she is able to function just normally now. Wonderful. The part that you're talking about is that she was out of her body. She flatlined during the surgery, and she was out of her body, and she, again, 
thought about her mother and went to the waiting room and then noticed that her mother and her father, who actually at that time had been divorced several years and her mother had remarried, and Tricia knew that her stepfather had been there at the hospital, but he wasn't there in the waiting room, and she wondered where he was, and just like I said, pew, she goes to this other part of the hospital and sees him putting quarters into a candy bar machine and taking out a candy bar. And she thinks that's really odd because her parents were health food nuts and they never ate refined sugar. Of course, they resuscitated her. They finished the surgery. She's in recuperation and her mother is there when she regains consciousness. And longer story shorter, her mother said, oh, Trisha, you'll never believe this. Your stepfather came back from a long walk through the hospital eating a candy bar. <laughs> and Trisha's like, yeah, I believe it. I know. Now we've collected over 100 cases of verified paranormal phenomena associated with near-death experiences. And these are verified by credible third parties, in most cases, the physician who was in attendance at the time. So another example is a woman is in surgery. She unexpectedly flatlines. She has a near-death experience. They resuscitate her. Of course, during this whole time, she's still completely anesthetized and and all this. They finish the surgery, take her to post-op, where she regains consciousness and her surgeon comes to visit her. She tells him, I know that I died during the surgery. And he's taken aback, like, how do you know that? And she said, well, I was up above the ceiling. And she proceeded to describe everything everyone did during the resuscitation process, which astounded him that but to us near-death researchers that's kind of like ho-hum but um, the really good part is she said yeah she said I was up above the ceiling and I could see into the adjacent operating room and there they were amputating a man's leg and I was watching just as they were finishing and they put the amputated leg into a yellow plastic bag to dispose of it Now, her surgeon was completely taken aback by this because uh, he said, I don't even know what's going on in the other operating rooms. But he went then to the hospital records and looked up a couple hours before when he was doing the surgery on her. Indeed, in the next operating room, they were amputating a man's leg. Wow. That was a specialized operating room for amputations, so he wasn't familiar with it. But at this time, when he was looking up the records, it was now empty. So he went to it and, and just peeked inside, and there he saw the yellow plastic bags they used to dispose of amputated body parts. So the question is, when people... People try to say that near-death experiences are just the hallucinations of a dying brain. How do you explain people having these veridical, that is, verified perceptions of things that, based on the condition and position of their physical body, they should not have been able to know and weren't even, in many cases, known to other people in their immediate area, and yet they're correct. And I did a study where I gathered all the ones that I could find in the literature, in books, in journals, and I think I came up with something like 130 of them, but they didn't all meet the criterion for this book, The Self Does Not Die, that has the over 100 cases of verified. Anyway, my purpose was to see how many of them involve some kind of error. And it turned out that it was just a very small percentage. And sometimes the error was just the tiniest thing. Like one gal in her near-death experience saw her brother in uniform. He had uh, several medals on his chest. And in one place, she saw a Christian cross. Later, when she got back home, she was out of country at the time. 
and actually saw a photo of her brother in his uniform. In that place where there was a Christian cross, there actually was another medal. So I counted that as an error, even though the fact that he had died and she didn't know it, and she met him in her near-death experience. She My saw goodness. him in uniform. She didn't know that he had volunteered for the service. In her, She was out of country for an extended period of time. All these things were accurate, but because there was one error, I counted it as wrong. Out of all those cases, a very small percentage had even the tiniest error. It was really out of that study that the core number of cases came for this book, The Self Does Not Die, with the over 100 cases of verified paranormal phenomena. Well, that to me speaks a great deal toward the comments that it's the brain firing the synapses or it's some kind of a seizure or things. Things like that. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, experiences often happen, as you mentioned earlier, while the person's heart is not beating. And what cardiologists tell us is that within 20 seconds of no more blood circulation, the brain shuts down in in terms of at least any measurable activity whatsoever. In some cases, it's very clear that the person was perceiving in the out-of-body state while their brain was offline. And so speaks loudly to the idea that rather than the brain producing consciousness, that consciousness exists apart from the brain but is closely associated with it during physical life. But when that physical connection is broken through cardiac arrest or any any extreme condition that can facilitate quote-unquote near-death experience. You don't actually have to be just close to death, but that's probably the most reliable way to have one. Yeah, so any extreme circumstances can facilitate this kind of experience. But the point being that the brain seems to be functioning as a filter of consciousness rather than the producer of it. And so when people are freed from the filter of their brain, they actually think faster That's what people report in near-death experiences. They can see in every direction because they're not limited to their physical eyes. They report seeing colors and hearing sounds that they've never heard on Earth. Well, if you understand like the ultraviolet continuum, we can perceive only a narrow range. And it appears that when people are freed from the physical constraints, they're able to perceive beyond just what we can see in our physical and hear in our physical lives. Communication tends to be mind to mind and very instantaneous, very rapid. It's a different way of being in that state. That is so exciting to hear. That's really amazing. Mm -hmm. I can see why you have been drawn to this field of research for so long. What a gift. Yeah, it really has been. I've been very, very fortunate in my uh, professional life to be able to do this. And I really credit UNT because when there have been branding exercises, a couple things that come out about UNT is that it's a very caring place and it's a place where there's a lot of creativity. That has been a perfect environment for me to be able to do this 
this research all these years. And my last year at UNT, I received the UNT Foundation's Eminent Faculty Award. Of course you did. And, and congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not in no surprise. Oh, that's really nice of you to say. But for me, it's an affirmation of the kind of place that UNT is to, instead of looking at this kind of research very askance, there's an understanding that this is a legitimate social science research area that really, as you commented earlier, when you said we could all stand to have an, an NDE, yes. the values from NDEs hold a lot of promise for a better world. To have the university affirm this area of research helps to affirm the values that come out of NDEs and that we could really use a lot of in our world today. We need another dimension. We need a greater dimension than just the superficial level that seems to be in operation in a lot of activities today. You've had quite a bit published throughout your career. I found your scholarly reviews, such as the Handbook of Near-Death Experiences, 30 Years of Investigation and The Self Does Not Die, Verified Paranormal Phenomena from Near-Death Experiences, edited by you to be full of a variety of interesting information. Do you plan on writing or collaborating on more? I know you're retired now. (laughs) I'm just curious if we'll get more from you. You have so much to share. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, I have been telling people I've retired from the university, but not from the field of near-death studies. So I'm the editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies, and I'll continue in that role. And I do have plans for several projects, a book and some modules that would be available online for people to learn about things like this and conferences. Although I have to say that I'm being very strategic about where I apply for conferences, like I applied for one in September in Paris, and the paper was accepted. So you I'll are be a smart woman going on a river <laughs> cruise after the conference. So yeah. Well, uh-huh. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that you have much more involvement also with Ollie because your lecture was extremely fascinating. You had mentioned some books in particular that you recommend for people on mm-hmm. the topic. Yeah. Would you like to comment on those? Sure. The For somebody kind of new to the subject, I like Ken Ring and Evelyn Elsacer Valerino's book, Lessons from the Light, because it's about what people who haven't had a near-death experience can learn from near-death experiencers. And since most people haven't had it, it speaks directly to them. People who are more interested in a more scientific approach, the Handbook of Near-Death Experiences, and for people who are interested in specifically in veridical perception, the self does not die. I think those are the ones that I would recommend first off. What about Dying to Be Me? Uh, So Anita Murjani's book, Dying to Be Me, I highly recommend. She had end-stage lymphoma. Have you read the book? Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. It is. She had end-stage lymphoma, went into the hospital weighing 70 pounds in coma with her organs shutting down and came out three weeks later symptom-free. She had a profound healing experience during her NDE, and when she regained consciousness, she 
just rapidly recovered. You know, one of the things you asked earlier about interesting things, one thing in her experience that really blew my mind. So she's out of her body. She's with a spirit guide. They're conversing and looking down on the hospital room where her body is laying. Her husband's there. Her mother's there. I don't know if her brother had arrived yet. The spiritual entity that was with her, I think actually it was her deceased father, said, you know, it's time for you to decide if you're going to stay here or go back. And she was like, it feels so good here. You know, people don't tend to want to go back. Uh, She decided, well, she said, I don't know that I really have a decision because we just saw somebody come and take a blood sample. And so the answer is in the tube, you know, about whether my organs are going to continue shutting down or going to start functioning again. And the spiritual entity said, no, your decision is going to determine the outcome of the test, of the blood test. So it emphasized that consciousness is more primary than material, that the material world is a manifestation of consciousness rather than vice versa. That it kind of empowers us and can be kind of daunting to think that we actually have that much power to influence the nature of the way things go in the material world. That was kind of a a mind blower for me. Something that really stuck with me in her book was she described, as you mentioned earlier, the limitations we have on lights, colors, and that kind of thing. And she described it as having looked at the world with a little flashlight and then when she had her experience, it was as though somebody turned the lights on and she could see everything. And she not was in just this from, huge, yes. endless warehouse of yes. all this stuff. Yeah. Things she'd never seen, colors and whatever mm-hmm. she had never seen before, just fascinating. Yeah. And that image really stuck with me yeah. from the book. Yeah. It's wonderful. She's spoken three or four times at the annual conference of the International Association for Near Death Studies. So anybody who really wants to come and hear ND ears talk about their experiences and hear researchers talk about what they're finding. That conference is held Labor Day every year over the Labor Day weekend. And does it vary different parts? Yes, next year, 2020, it'll be in Salt Lake City. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that I haven't mentioned? Talking about Anita's experience reminded me that one of the things, and this may be a great point to end on, that about half of people in the near-death experience have the sense that they didn't choose to return to physical life. They may have actually resisted it. One gal said she was arguing with the being of light, and the being was saying, you know, you need to go back. Your work isn't done. And she's like, no, I'm not going back. And, <laughs> no, I'm yes, fine you here. Are. Yeah. And she's going, no, I'm not. And light says, yes, you are. And she says, you see who won. <laughs> and so another portion of people who don't have a sense that they chose to come back say that they were just tooling along in the NDE and suddenly it's like somebody just turned the off switch on and they were back in their body like unprepared. In many cases they're told that they need to come back and but about half of people say that they either directly or indirectly chose to come back and usually it's indirectly. Sometimes it's directly. They'll actually think of someone who needs them and that that person's life will be, the quality of their life will be much reduced if they they don't go back and be with that person. But sometimes, like my friend Linda, who drowned when she was five, she was out of her body and watching the resuscitation, and she had fallen into a river and her or a stream, and her brother was supposed to have been watching her, and he wasn't. And she thought, 
about what his life would be like if she died, that he would be forever guilty forever. and held guilty. And, and the moment she empathized with him that way, she was back in her body. And so people, whether they do it, come back voluntarily or involuntarily, it's always as a result of empathizing with someone that they can be of service to. And it's an act of love. Yeah. That matches a conversation that I had with a gentleman from the community I live in. Uh-huh. He had had a near-death experience, and he described it as you often hear going in the tunnel and the light and mm-hmm. the peace. And he said it was as though there was a wall there. Mm-hmm. And he knew that if he went on the other side of that wall, he would not come back. But he said, I love my wife, and I'm not through living my life with my wife yet. And then that was it. So it just matches perfectly what you just described. Sure does. That's pretty incredible, I think. The power of love is a wonderful thing. And that probably if there were one message that near-death experiencers, well, actually, when near-death experiencers say that uh, in the big picture, there are two purposes to our existence on earth. And one is to advance in our capacity to love, and the other is to learn, to acquire knowledge. So it's all about loving and learning. So let's all do that now. Let's do it. We don't have to flatline in order to do that. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so very much. What an incredibly, incredibly interesting interview. We could speak again and again and again. I'm sure you have so much knowledge to share. And I know even with your lectures, you have videos Mm -hmm. and all types of information. So I encourage people if they hear that... uh, Dr. Jan Holden is speaking anywhere that they need to actually clear their calendar. <laughs> thank you, so Susan. thank you, thank you so much. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Jan Holden. Thanks so much for listening.